Glad that you're here. Uh, this morning out in the hallway between class and our time together, one of our two-year-olds was so excited. She was over by the uh, water fountain and anybody that would give her an audience, she was saying, we get to hunt Easter eggs. She was fired up about what's happening in We Worship this morning. And we're fired up about getting to talk about resurrection today. Now, all of us, as we grow up, there is an unfortunate part that we, of life as we grow that we all experience. It happens no matter who we are, but it's those times and those moments when truth of our childhood is revealed, when things change, and when we realize that the world no longer uh, does not or never did operate as we once thought. Can you remember those times today? Can you remember those aha when the veil was torn away, when the Wizard of Oz was not really a wizard? It's those moments where a piece, a part of our wonder, our awe, maybe even our childlike faith gets chipped away. It's events like when you discover that your parents are not perfect, right? And really, even later, you discover that they have no clue what they're doing in the first place. Amen, college kids? You guys got that figured out? Right? It's other moments when you're a kid and you realize that eating that apple or watermelon seed will not make a plant or tree grow in your stomach. That's good news. Or the one that I probably didn't learn until I was well into adulthood, that if you do swallow your gum, it doesn't really take seven years to digest. For me, the times I can remember most of all when these moments when those childlike wonder got chipped away from was when I learned that Oompa Loompas were not real and that there was no such thing as a chocolate river. So disappointed. Another one when I was probably in first or second grade that really disappointed me because I had so many plans was that I could not buy nor purchase nor make a Star Wars lightsaber, a real one that would cut through metal. I had some serious plans, right? When I was 16, I had this idea that getting my license would mean more freedom, but then I quickly realized that getting my license really only meant running to the store for my mom over and over and over again. Then one that hit me probably even later than that was that all of grandma's snacks in her pantry, the ones that we had partaken of for years, the Vienna sausages and the bags of Cheetos and all that stuff. It hit me hard when we finally realized most of those were already expired. <laughs> my childlike wonder in my grandma's house was quickly taken away. But the one I remember most of all during this time of year, in the spring and the season that we're in, is learning the disappointment that the chocolate bunnies that everyone got at Easter parties at school, that those chocolate bunnies held a deep, dark secret. See, my family was not into giving much holiday gifts. 
Uh, I wasn't one of those kids at school that got baskets sent to me or things sent to me for the holidays. My parents didn't really do that sort of thing. It wasn't that they didn't love me. They just didn't love me as much as those parents loved other kids, <laughs> right? So I often looked with jealousy upon the first graders and kindergartners in my classes that got baskets and they got the Cadbury eggs delivered. But most of all, my jealousy was inflamed when I saw fellow students receive the very coveted biggest prize of all, the chocolate bunny. Oh, the chocolate bunny. I loved and wanted one of those so bad. So this went on for a couple years and my mom must have picked up on my desire. So you can imagine my joy around the time I was think I was in third grade that I woke up on an Easter Sunday and my brother and I shared a room and there in our room on our dresser was two baskets. In the middle of the basket was an Easter bunny, a chocolate Easter bunny. I was so excited. I don't think it looked like this. This one's kind of goofy looking. He's got massive ears. He's like, I can hear you, right? But you can imagine my joy, but then you can also imagine how my excitement quickly disappeared when I took my first bite and reality set in and the stinking thing was hollow. <laughs> what a disappointment to know that chocolate bunnies, they were not full. They weren't the treat of my dream. The bunnies were hollow. Now, so are we. We're hollow without a full and beautiful vision and understanding of Easter. And what I mean by that is what we all know, that deep in the heart of every human soul, in every human person, is a hollow place, an empty place, a place that longs and aches to fill whole and to be filled, to have meaning and purpose. It's a hollow place that we often fill up with cheap distractions that we strive to fill with things that we know will never love us back because we know that as hard as we strive and as hard as we try, we cannot fill that empty, hollow space. This rarely recognized in our world but always ever-present space in the human heart can only be satisfied in one place and really by one person. It's not filled by a great friend. It's not filled by a better job, a bigger house, more money, more toys, more stuff. It won't be filled by more follows or more likes or a video that finally goes viral. It won't be filled by content. It won't even be filled by getting for Easter a solid milk chocolate Easter bunny. This empty space only finds fullness when it is filled by the author of life, the one who left a tomb empty and hollow so that he could fill our very lives with his presence. And that's why we celebrate this morning. In the disappointments of life, we get to look and wonder and awe at Easter and say our word for the day, our word that brings life, that because of Easter, we can be saved. We have salvation. And so I want to begin with a tough question. 
Maybe an uncomfortable question, a question that might bring up some squirming. And that is, are you saved? Now, I know that because of where we live and the world that many of us have grown up in, this is not an uncommon question. Sermons and youth rallies and even the revivals that I went to in my childhood were full of this question. There was moments in life when I had sometimes mistakenly shown up in a building like this and a preacher kept asking, are you saved over and over? It seemed that much of my life growing up and much of probably yours centered on that question. Maybe it wasn't asked this way. Often in my life, it wasn't asked, are you saved? It was often asked, If you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Now, I'm not here to pick on that question. It's a good question. It can even be a great question. But there is a comma. There is a problem with that question. There is a but. And maybe it's just me. But it seems that when this question is often asked or has been asked, It's not asked in a relationship. It's not asked in connection or in relation to a flourishing connection with Jesus. But it's been asked only for most of us, if you are like me, to make sure that I was avoiding something. Avoiding the fires of hell. Which again is something that I want all of us to do that I want to do in my life. But again, here's the problem. When we asked, are you saved, and only thought about what we are saved from, we were giving people a cultural question, a dimension of salvation that was one-dimensional alone. It was black and white. It was colorless, and it missed the larger point of Scripture and the larger idea of salvation. When salvation only focuses on what I'm saved from, we never get to learn what we're saved for. And that is what the New Testament actually is about. The New Testament knows no such bland, one-dimensional salvation. Salvation in the New Testament is not just about a ticket. It is about a whole life. The New Testament offers an Easter, empty tomb, rich salvation, a full salvation. And if you don't believe me, let us hear scripture this morning. I want you to hear this morning two passages. And may you hear these passages with new ears and see them with new eyes. And the first one is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. Listen to the salvation Paul speaks of to those in Corinth. He says, for Christ's love compels us or constrains us or drives us or pushes us or leads us for Christ's love. His love when? On the cross. His love to die. His love to save. That compels us. To do what? Because we are convinced that no one But we are convinced that one, sorry, died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He continues. So from now on, because of salvation, because of the message of Jesus, 
something has happened. Not a one-dimensional salvation, but from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And then he closes with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Do you hear the message? Do you hear the vision of Paul? The call beyond a hollow salvation. What he's saying is Christ died for everyone. Now we live for everyone. See, salvation is not hollow in the New Testament. It's holistic. Another place where this is evident happens in the book of Acts. We looked at this in the bridge class this morning with my fifth grade boys. It's a place where Paul or where Peter and the other apostles have been brought in front of the same authorities that put Jesus to death. And they command Peter and the other apostles. They say, don't talk about this man anymore. And I want you to notice how Peter describes this Jesus. Starting in chapter 5, verse 29, it says, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And God exalted him to his own right hand, and listen to this, as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Now, I want you to hone in on this interesting little description. In front of these authorities in which have just 40 days before this, plus a few other days, have put Jesus to death. Now Peter stands in front of them with great boldness and goes, we're not going to obey you because something has happened. We have been saved and our salvation is not just from hell. Our salvation is for a new way of life. And then they describe Jesus in this interesting way. He's not only savior, saved us from our sins, but he's a prince. Now that's a strange way. It might be the only place in your New Testament. I know it's the only place in the NIV that uses that word, prince. So what is Peter trying to get at? Well, there's other times in the New Testament this word for prince shows up, but it is never um, interpreted as such. Really, this word has to do not with somebody of royalty. He's not trying to make us think of Prince Charles or Prince Charming. What he is trying to make us think of, this word here, is that Christ is not only Savior, and the word actually means he is ruler or author or beginner. Greatest place that probably in the New Testament that makes that clear is Hebrews 12, 2, where this word appears again for prince. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the prince, the author and perfecter of our faith. So, what is salvation? Salvation is not a hollow, one sided dimension of, oh, yes, look, I got my ticket to heaven so I could stay out of hell. Salvation, because of Easter, is this. It is a proclamation that Jesus is savior of our souls and then he becomes author for our lives. The pioneer, the one who goes before us, the one who shows us the way. 
Another way to say this is that salvation is not only inheritance, heaven, it is also inhabitants' relationship. So in 1965, this is a great story, an unbelievable story I ran across when I was reading a book a couple weeks ago. It was in 1965 that a small group of six teenage boys, ranging from age 13 to 16, decided to run away from their home on the island of Tonga in the South Pacific. They got together and they were tired of the world they lived in and they decided that the island of Fiji, 500 miles away, would offer them a much better life. And so on this tiny island of Tonga, they got together one night late and they stole a fisherman's sailboat and they headed out in haste towards this island of Fiji, 500 miles away. Maybe there was pretty girls there. I don't know what was their motivation. All they took with them in their hurry was a sack of food, a little bit of water in a jug, and a small gas stove. They weren't very they weren't very prepared for this trip. So they didn't bring a map. They didn't bring a compass. And very few of them had ever sailed out beyond a couple miles from their little island. As soon as they got out there, they got lost. They drifted off course. And instead of heading from Tonga, kind of west, northwest towards Fiji, they ended up drifting southwest for eight days. For eight days, they didn't see land. And then thinking it was the end of their lives, they finally spotted on the eighth day a tiny uninhabited island called the island of Atta. Somehow, after being deserted on this island for 15 months, they survived. They survived by barely getting by. They survived very difficult conditions. Very little rainfall comes into that part of the South Pacific. One of the boys broke his leg. They starved. A book was written about these boys called The Real Lord of the Flies. They tried to survive. They ate birds. They drank blood of birds to try to quench their thirst. But each one of them never believed they would ever be rescued. For 15 months, they barely got by. But then in September of 1966, an Australian fisherman, who actually was a lobster fisherman by the name of Peter Warner, was sailing near this island. He was out looking way away from his own homeland of Australia. When he spotted this island, which he had been by before, and he noticed that there was little sections of grass that looked like they had been burnt. And he thought, that's strange, because if there was lightning, it would have burned much more. So he got close, and as he got close to the island, all of a sudden, out of the bush and out of the small grass that was there, six young boys walked out of the bush and greeted him. He was shocked. So he fed them. He put them on board his boat. He got word out after they got back to Australia to his, their families that they were alive. Then he set sail for the island of Tonga and he took them home. 
The families in the village greeted them with a party. Most of the families of the six boys had already had funerals for the boys, believing they were the very worst that they were dead. But here they were, standing on Peter Warner's boat, safe, rescued, saved. It was as if they had been brought back from the dead, resurrected. Peter Warner was a hero to the boys, saving them from a certain and slow death. It's an incredible story. And it probably would be enough this morning to say, that's enough. That's a dramatic rescue. It's salvation. But not by our definition of salvation. Because yes, he did rescue them, but the rest of the story of what Peter Warner did for these boys is incredible. Because the rest of the story is that after the good news of the rescue, the fishermen whose boat was stolen 15 months before was still angry. And he let the parties happen, and then he went to the police and had all six boys arrested. (laughs) He was very upset. Peter Warner got word of that. Word that the boys were being arrested and punished. And so Peter Warner decided that he was not finished. It was not enough for him just to rescue them. So what he did was he sold his whole business in Australia, moved his entire well-being to the island of Tonga. With the sale of some of his equipment, he paid the boys' legal fees, paid for them to get out of jail, and paid in full for the stolen boat so that the man who was angry would be satisfied. But then he went even further. In quitting his job in Sydney Harbor, He not only moved to Tonga, but he decided, I can fish for lobster here as well. So he started a new business and hired six employees, the six boys who he saved. He mentored them. He showed them how to live. He showed them how to work hard. He became friends with them. He was in their weddings. He was part of their family. And he lived and flourished with them until his death at age 90. At his funeral, every one of the boys stood up and said, Peter Warner was my father and my friend. Warner and his story with these boys is amazing. And it's amazing because it gives us the New Testament picture of what Easter is about, what salvation is about. Not only in his willingness to rescue, but as an incredible perseverance to stay with the boys long term. This is the gospel. It is what Christian salvation is all about. A savior who is willing to go to death on the cross, but then also a risen ruler and Lord who is willing to inhabit our lives and stick it out. To teach us and transform us There is a great difference, church family. Make no mistake about it. There is a great difference between the person who was saved to get out of hell free and the person who is saved to live in relationship for the rest of their life with Jesus. Easter is not the end of the story. Your baptism is not the end of your story. It is the beginning. We peer into an empty tomb because we are saved from sin 
to learn to be saved for. But we don't just peer into an empty tomb in wonder and awe. We peer into an empty tomb in wonder and awe so that we can turn our eyes and find the living Savior and say, you're the one who defeated death. Show me how to live. That's the message of Easter. That is who Jesus is. He has risen to rule, to rescue, and to save. Whatever you need this morning, we are here for you. We serve this Savior. Salvation is not hollow. Salvation is full. It changes every part of our life. Let's stand together and sing.